Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of people think that somehow Christianity is misogynistic and down on women. And it's because of this toxic masculinity that apparently the Bible uh, is advocating. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Not only if you take a proper interpretation of the scriptures, but also if you look at the real world results. And my guest today, who was my guest on the main show earlier this week, is Professor Nancy Piercy. Her fabulous new book is called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And you've got to listen to the first podcast we did over radio because we're going to jump right in the middle of the conversation. We're just going to continue what we were talking about uh, last uh, week. Uh, and Nancy, let me start with this. Uh, we were at the end of last week's program. You were revealing that the research shows that the best thing that can happen to women in terms of of their family and bringing men into line to actually treat them well is evangelical Christianity. Can you just kind of summarize that point again uh, before we continue to talk about some other aspects, including the feminization of the church? So go ahead. Yes, uh, this is the main reason I wrote the book is that there's been a lot of sociological and psychological studies done on evangelical men, and partly in response to these accusations, right? partly because the um, accusations against men have really focused on Christian men. Anyone who believes that there's some sort of male headship or authority in the home is targeted, you know, as tyrannical, patriarchal, uh, and oppressive. So the studies have been done specifically of evangelical men, and they have found that evangelical men test out as the most loving husbands, and by the way, yes, they do talk to the wives separately, so the, the mm -hmm. wives do report being the happiest in terms of their husband's expressions of love and appreciation. They're the most engaged fathers, and they're the, they have the lowest level of divorce and the lowest level of domestic violence. So contrary to the media messages that some of these men are more violent, they're actually the least violent. Let me actually give you a quote from the main researcher on this is a sociologist named Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And this is my favorite line from his, his study. He ends it by saying, academics need to cast aside their prejudices. Academics, of course, he's speaking to his fellow colleagues, his mm -hmm. fellow sociologists mm -hmm. who are all secular. Academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line is that solid empirical research is showing that Christianity, Christianity does have an answer to reconciling the sexes. And it has stood up to rigorous scientific testing and so Christians should be bold in bringing this into the public square and saying, you know, we have an answer to the charge of toxic masculinity. And it's been tested 
by empirical research, this is not just, you know, a, a pastor saying, rah, rah, we're great. <laughs> um, this is a, a tested, testable uh, sociological and, science, and uh, psychological research. Nancy, why do you think uh, that the general culture believes that somehow the Christian view of a marriage relationship is somehow a problem for women? Is it because of the word submit that we find in Paul's writings? What's the what's the real reason for it? Yeah, well, in my book, I do deal with the word submission and what it means. But sometimes it's easier if you do just a word study. <laughs> so uh -huh. I think some of the major words that uh, cause problems are, first of all, Genesis, where the woman is created as a, quote, help or helper mm -hmm. for the man. Mm -hmm. Well, in Hebrew, the word is E-Z-E-R, pronounced azer. And we tend to think helper means, you know, the nice little assistant who comes along and uh, the man does the really important stuff. And the woman's just his little helper. But Azer in Hebrew does not mean that. In the vast majority of times that the word Azer is used in the Old Testament, it's applied to God. You know, our ever-present help, ever help in trouble. So it clearly does not apply, it does not imply a subordinate or inferior position. And when it's not applied to God, by the way, it's applied to a military ally. So, you know, you go get help, you know, from a military mm -hmm, ally mm -hmm. to fight your battle. So the meaning of the word Azar or help does not mean a subordinate inferior person. It was even incorporated in some male names like Ebenezer and Eliezer. Hebrew fathers would not give their sons names that they thought were effeminate or weak. <laughs> so, right. so a lot of people have found just focusing on a single word like that is helpful. The other one that I find that um, people has, have trouble with is First Peter, where Peter says to husbands, you know, be considerate of your wives because they're the weaker vessel. Mm -hmm. Well, what does he mean by weaker? Again, you can go through the whole Old Testament. Who is defined as weak? It tends to be people who are powerless. It's not a judgment on their character, like weaker in intelligence or morally weaker. It's the widow and the orphan and the alien in your gates. In other words, it's people without power, who, have, who don't have economic power or political power, social power, and so on. Or, or could be just physical power, too, could Physical it? power. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And it's, we need to recognize that men are bigger, stronger, and faster. Uh, and, and Peter, excuse me, Paul in Corinthians uses it that way, too, when he says, remember, not many of you were strong or well-educated or high status, but God chose the weak things of the world. In other words, he's referring to status and... Uh, and, and economic power, education, and so on. And so it is important to go back and realize that Paul is talking about that, well, in most cultures, women have been among the weak of the world in the sense of having uh, less political power, less social power, less economic power. And what you just said, clearly start with just biology. Women are smaller and physically weaker. And it's not any surprise that in all cultures, men have been expected to be the providers and the protectors. Because they are bigger and stronger, and testosterone uh, gives them more aggression, makes them more risk-taking. And these are good things. You know, this is how God made men. And so we should affirm and support that. Nancy, I don't know how much you cover this question, but when I was growing up, if uh, a boy was a little rambunctious, it was always said, well, he's just a boy. That's what boys do. You know, they're they're getting their aggressions out. They're a little bit more aggressive than women. You know, boys are playing with trucks and 
and playing army and, you know, blowing things. They want to, you know, they, they want a rough house a little bit where the girls generally are softer, you know. Uh, now it seems like we look at a boy's behavior and we says, oh, he's got ADD. We need to get him medication. Is that in any way related to this view of toxic masculinity? Yeah, that one's a little tricky because like well, like we just said, testosterone does make boys more aggressive, more risk-taking, more physically active. And those are good things and should be affirmed. And you're right, we're medicating boys out of it. You know, we're putting them on Ritalin. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, one, one author of a book on boys, there are a whole slew of books now on you know, the boy crisis, you know, why boys fail. And one of the authors put it this way, uh, in school, girls are seen as the gold standard and boys are treated as defective girls because girls hmm. do, you know, have more fine motor control, more verbal abilities. And so boys are falling behind all the way from kindergarten to college. Yeah, you cover that in the book. Why is that? Uh, well, just what you said. <laughs> um, because most teachers are at that age, for that age group, are women. In fact, all the way up to high school, male, male teachers have become more and more rare. And so it's just... It is partly, I think, just natural that women teachers have a more instinctive uh, sense of of a, of a connection with their female students, and it's also because because of the feminist movement, uh, the Gender Equality Act has poured millions and millions of dollars into workshops for how to have you know how to teach girls and how to have curriculum that is supportive of girls, and there's been nothing like that for boys. And so now it's been an imbalance. Now, now more girls than boys do well in school and get better grades and go into college and graduate from college. More women than men go to graduate school and even professional school like law and medicine. So boys are falling behind because we have not treated them as though they're worth spending time with. And, and adult men, too. Um, adult men are falling behind where they were and relative to women as well. More when, more men than women commit suicide. They're more likely to be mentally ill. They're more likely to be homeless. They're more likely to be addicted to drugs or alcohol. Male unemployment rates have dropped to Depression-era levels. This was shocking to me. Um, it doesn't show up in the unemployment statistics because they're not even looking for work. So researchers had to dig deeper, and they tell us that male unemployment levels are at depression-era levels, and men's life expectancy is even going down. Women's has stayed the same, so it's not a general trend. It's just men. And there was a an article in a magazine called The New Scientist, and it said the largest demographic factor for early death now is being male. Mm. So I do think it's time that we start thinking, I mean, it was great we poured all that money into helping girls succeed. But we really need to start looking at what does it take to help boys? And what are some programs we can institute to help boys do better and have more confidence? Because they're the ones who now are in trouble far more than girls in terms of, there was even a study done of parents. Um, Who are you more worried about growing up and being successful? They were far more worried about their sons than their daughters. Mm. They knew that their sons are the ones who are having more difficulty today in growing up and becoming successful. So there is a real need to focus on what does it mean to be a boy and how can we encourage and support boys? 
Yeah, instead of giving young men a track to run on to say, here's how you ought to, here's how you ought to uh, comport yourself according to biblical or natural law principles, we don't give them any track to run on. We just say, don't do these things. But yet the women are doing them now, right? <laughs> we say, we say, okay, you can't be flirtatious. You can't, you can't uh, uh, be non-monogamous. Uh, but you can also be non-monogamous. It's it's contradictory. I can't even express it now. You, you know, we're 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 not supposed to be uh, an ogre, but we are ogres, and it's men men just don't know what to do. This is why I said in the first broadcast we had Nancy that Jordan Peterson is sort of giving men a track to run on with its. 12 rules for life. Yes. Of course, many of them are biblical principles. I see you want to jump in yeah. here. Go right ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, because you had asked me uh, during the break, you know, is there mm -hmm. a positive program for mm -hmm. men? And, you know, I think there's a positive program that is often overlooked, and it's the cultural mandate. In Genesis 1, God has created the universe and the earth and the animals and the plants, and then at the apex, you know, is, is the humans, the first humans. And the first thing he says to them is, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Subdue the earth. Yeah. And that's, that verse is often called the cultural mandate because if you unpack the highly streamlined language of Genesis 1, it means, well, be fruitful and multiply doesn't just mean have kids. It means all the social institutions that historically mm. grow out of the family. You know, so the family becomes the extended family, becomes the tribe, the clan, the village, the nation. And, and there are social institutions for particular functions like the school, the church, the, the marketplace, the state. So be fruitful does not mean it it's, encompasses the entire social world. Everything we do in terms of building up the social world around us. Subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. And so we tend to think, well, you know, the early humans were farmers. Well, yeah, but it goes on to mining and technology and building bridges and and inventing computers and composing music. So this is sometimes called a cultural mandate because it says that God's original goal for humans was to create civilizations, create cultures, create history. And this is the track. I mean, it's interesting you you use the track, the word track, because that's the use I, that's what I say in my book. I say, mm -hmm. you know, when we sin we get off the track. And when God saves right. us, he puts us back on the track. But what was the track? You know, it's, mm. it's the task that he gave us in Genesis when he first created people. Remember, this is before the fall. So this is what God tells people to, you know, why did I create you? Here it is. You know, you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And uh, one of my students once said, when I said composing music was part of subduing the earth, he said, oh, come on, composing music? And I said, um, I play the violin. What's the violin made out of? wood what's the bow made out of horsehair so all the transcendent beauty you associate with music starts with being creative with the raw materials of nature so this is the track and i think we could do a lot more in explaining what the cultural mandate is that men don't find their true self by you know leaving civilization behind by leave going off in the mountains and climbing mountains and hunting elk with a bow <laughs> um, you know, because a lot of the manhood books essentially mm -hmm, say mm -hmm. you need to get away. That's how you that's how you right. recover your true manhood. No, according to Genesis, you, you recover your true manhood by rolling up your sleeves and embedding deeply in your family and the other social institutions 
and in productive and creative work. Yeah, generally, I've noticed, and of course, this is a generalization, but generally, a man is designed to conquer the world, and a, uh, the wife more wants to conquer the family or conquer the man, right? The, the wife appears to be more focused on making sure there's harmony inside the family, and it seems like the men are more concerned. They want that, but they're also more concerned with conquering the world. They want to make sure that they, as you say, the cultural mandate is carried out, that the man is supposed to go out there and provide for his family and make his mark on the world at the same time. That seems to be the general approach. But when the culture says, no, you can't do that, that's toxic masculinity, then he feels like, well, what am I supposed to do then? play video games all day? Yeah, that's what they're doing in their in their parents' basement, you know. Um, let me yeah. ask you this, Nancy, because I think this is a problem in the church. Just to be honest, a lot of times I don't like church. Uh, I think partially it's because I think the church, to a certain extent, has become feminized with the songs that are played, how they're played. We're gonna, You're going to love Jesus. You know, I... I understand that in one sense. In another sense, most men are going, love Jesus. What is that even? What do you mean by that? Uh, it almost it almost sounds like it's romance language, right? Um, 60% or more of the people that attend church are women. Is this a real issue or not? Oh, yeah, I think it is, definitely. Um, and if anyone wants to dive in, there's a really good book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. The author endorsed my book, Um which was nice. I got to talk to him. And at any rate, yes, this has been a problem since day one of the early church. And in some ways, in some ways, it's not a bad thing. If you, you can phrase it positively, namely, the church was especially appealing to women. Um, in the early church, women had far more status and respect within the church than they did in the Roman culture outside or the Jewish culture either. Mm. But Roman culture had a very low view of women. You know, wives were for having heirs, you know, legal heirs. But it was totally accepted that men would have sex with just about anything else that walks, you know, with mistresses and prostitutes and um, uh, courtesans and slaves, um, both men and women. Most adultery was actually with a man's slaves, both men and women, both adult and children. And this was not seen as a moral issue at all. Uh, women would sometimes complain, naturally, um, but they were told, I actually have a quote from a Roman writer saying, you know, don't complain because actually, he actually said this. He said, wives, don't complain because you know sex with boys is more pleasurable. So that was the attitude in Roman mm. culture. So when women came into the Christian church, they had much higher status and respect. And so we find literature from the early church saying, oh, we got a lot more women than men, even from the beginning. And so a lot of women were converting and then kind of pulling their husbands, their pagan husbands in, you know, trying to at least. Um, but in America, it really was amplified during the first and second great awakenings because more women than men were converting. And if you look at engravings of the time, you can often see the women standing right in the, in the center at the front, you know, as they listen to the revivalist speaking. And so in America, that also had an impact to where eventually you know, if if a pastor is always hanging around women, you know, they're the majority of his congregation. They're the people working in the church charities and ministries. Eventually, it is pretty common for him to begin using more 
feminine language, more feminine concepts, because that's who he's dealing with constantly. So it's not surprising when a church becomes more feminized. So the real issue is, um, how do we get out of using language that is more geared towards women? Uh, the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, um, does suggest things. Sometimes they're very simple, like decor. Don't have pastels. You know, have have rock and wood <laughs> walls. Mm -hmm. You know, and don't put Kleenex at the end of each pew. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and get rid of those banners. You know, j j even just simple things like that in the decor, or have more, uh, like you said, the, the can we go back to maybe some of the hymns, like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's much mm -hmm. more masculine sounding, written by Lu Martin Luther, of course, you know, than Jesus, Jesus is my boyfriend type songs. Right. It also, it also seems uh, that from a uh, appeal perspective, you mentioned the Great Awakenings, Nancy, they were more emotional appeals, weren't they, to Christianity rather than evidence-based appeals. And of course, this is a generalization, but in the world I'm in, it seems that uh, there are many more male apologists, you're an exception, but there are many more male apologists than women apologists. Um, men seem mm -hmm. to be drawn more to the, uh, the facts Whereas maybe generally, and of course there are exceptions, as I mentioned, women appear to be more aligned with the emotion or more motivated by the emotion. Is, 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 is that something now that the church is being more emotion-oriented and has been more emotion-oriented emotion for about the past hundred years? Is that part of the problem or part of the reason men don't want to go to church? Yeah, good point. Um, at the time of the First and Second Great Awakenings, there were not a lot of atheists and skeptics in America. Mm -hmm. And so the revivalists did not feel they had to craft an intellectual approach. They did not have to use apologetics. What they were trying mm -hmm. to do was add fervor and fire to nominal Christians. And so by definition then almost, the, their approach was to focus on emotions, you know, to rev up, warm their hearts, right? Um, right. And so they focused on trying to create an intense emotional experience. And we do have some of the negative baggage of that. That the the approach that churches took ever since did tend to focus on creating an intense emotional conversion experience. And I, you you know the question of whether men you know the broader question you raise um, whether men are more um, logical and rational than women. Um, well, it depends on which it depends on which. Uh, personality test you want mean, to appeal to. I don't to. mean men are more I don't mean men are more rational than women. I I I think generally that men at least in my experience appear to be more attracted to the evidence. They want to know is this stuff really true rather than Jesus loves your soul come to him. You know, or what are they more motivated by? I'm not saying men are smarter, they're certainly probably not. Uh what I'm saying is they they appear to be more motivated by the the hard evidence and less apt to be uh, swayed just by emotion. Yeah, um, and and everyone's going to argue whether this is inherent or whether this is socialization, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. because uh, as here's an example: the Myers Briggs personality test shows that sixty five percent of men are the rational, logical, strategic. So it's a small majority, but it's a majority. And 65% of women are, are oriented toward the emotions, which is the F. Um, 
But as the feminist movement has made it more acceptable for women to be in leadership positions, they're testing out more tea, more rational. So that's where you're not quite sure how much of this is socialization. But I don't care because we're all rational creatures. We're all made in God's image. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think the, the failure of the church has been to not respect the mind in everyone. When I went to Labrie as a young agnostic, you know, I was not a Christian. Um, when I went to Labrie, the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, and he's known for his apologetics ministry. And that was the first time I had ever encountered Christians who took my questions seriously. Before that, no Christians had. You know, it was, what's wrong with you? You know, like there's some moral defect or some you know, personality <laughs> defect that you, you don't have faith. What's wrong with you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and one of Schaefer's lines was, one of his most famous lines was, we need to give honest answers to honest questions. And that's what I encountered there. And I come away from that saying, you know, we all are made in God's image. We all have a mind and we all have a responsibility to show that Christianity uh, um, is, belongs, you know, belongs in the intellectual mm-hmm. realm. You know, it affects, it's, it's congruent with our minds as well. It doesn't mean you have to be an intellectual. You can be a mechanic and you still want it to make sense, you know, because we're made in God's image. And I think that's where the church is falling down. I think it has not respected the mind. Love God with all your mar- heart, mm-hmm. soul, strength, and mind. And to a large degree, the church has not taken that last one and treated it with respect. Yes, we have to know how Christianity addresses the mind. Even if that's not going to be your main thing, you're not going to be an apologist. <laughs> I think still you respect people as whole persons made in God's, God's image, including their mind. Yeah, it, it, there may be, there's obviously another angle to this, a complicated topic, but you mentioned earlier about testosterone. Men are more apt, it seems, to want to confront and more apt to want to draw straight lines. And, you know, here, this is right, this is wrong. Based, based on that, they, they're, they're more, I, I, I think they're just generally more aggressive, as we mentioned earlier. And yet so many pastors we see today, are they don't, they don't want to address anything controversial. They don't want to address the issues of the day. And some men then are going, well, this, this guy doesn't really appeal to me as a, as a preacher. He, he's, not, he's not really standing for anything. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Oh, yeah. And, and again, I think this is the second, first and second Great Awakenings, especially the second one. Um, you mm. know, it did teach a lot of people it left people with the impression that Christianity is mostly about emotions. I have students in my classes, by the way, and at the beginning of the class, they'll say that Christianity is all emotional. And by the way, they also think it's totally relative. You know, you know, it's relative to me. It's my truth. You have your other truth and it's all emotional. And they get at the end of my class and they say, you know, it's actually pretty intellectual after all. It's one student last semester even came up to me and said, I always thought it was just, you know, Praise Jesus. <laughs> that, yeah, that's how you put it. It's just praise Jesus, just, you know, wonderful emotions. And now I realize it's actually rather philosophical. That was the word he used. You know, it's actually got reason and logic and evidence. Uh, so a lot of young people have just never heard the case for a more intellectual approach to Christianity. And that includes who's the type of person who's attracted to be a youth pastor? It tends to be someone who's very personable and fun and friendly and wants to play games and you know so it does attract that personality as well and then if that person moves up into a leadership position he brings that youth pastor ethos with him 
but I wanted to, before we leave uh, the differences between mm -hmm. men and women, you know, we've talked about the differences mostly in terms of where men are superior. You know, they're stronger, they're faster, they tend, they, they, they sometimes are more rational. I think it's important. The reason feminists and others don't like to talk about the differences is because it always seems like it's in men's favor, right? That women are always less than. So in my book, I make a point of saying, yes, men are bigger and stronger, but what's women's superpower? You know, it's, it's having babies. And they also test out higher on tests of emotional intelligence. And the two, I think, are connected because caring for an infant is incredibly demanding. Uh, you have to be on, on call 24 hours a day. You have to be willing to be stopped doing whatever you're doing, no matter what it is. If a child's in distress, you don't scold them. You don't reason with them. You alleviate their, their distress immediately, no matter what you wish you were doing. You have to be incredibly patient and sensitive to nonverbal cues because they don't speak yet. And mothers also become very sensitive to threats in the child's environment. You know, they become mama bears. So when we talk about the differences between men and women, we should make sure we're always talking about the women's strengths as strengths, you know, as their powers. Um, so that, uh, I mean, women have other strengths as well, but we're talking about the distinctive ones that are distinctive to women. Um, that we always phrase that in terms of good things. Women are made in God's image too, and men can learn mm -hmm. something from women about God. I hear so often, you know, well, men reflect God, you know, in their leadership position. You know, men have to be in leadership because that they reflect God. Well, women reflect God too. They're made in God's image, and when they're sensitive, and when they're kind, and when they're caring and nurturing to their children, that's why the Bible does have maternal metaphors for God in many places, and Jesus as well. You know the metaphor of the mother hen so that and mm -hmm. even paul when paul says i was gentle among you like a nursing mother mm. how many men think they have something to learn from a nursing mother <laughs> paul did Absolutely. <laughs> so we should always make sure we're expressing the distinctive uh, feminine strengths as strengths as well yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, my wife is much better at emotional intelligence than I am. I'm a blockhead when it comes to that stuff. She'll say, Did you, didn't you get the vibe? No, I didn't get the vibe, hon. What do you mean? <laughs> so uh, she she knows much better than I do. Well, Nancy, this is a fascinating topic and a fascinating book. Uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. It's not only true because it's from God's Word, uh, but it's true, actually, in the data. When we look at the data, even by secularists, they will point out that, yes, Christianity does, in fact, rec reconcile the sexes. So make sure you get that book. Also go to Nancy's website, nancypiercy.com. Nancy Piercy, again, pair, P-E-A-R-C-E-Y.com. You'll see that book. You'll see other, some other great books there, like Total Truth, and Love Thy Body and several others. And if you want a good place to get a education, Houston Christian University. Is it hcu.edu? Is that right, Nancy? What's the website right. for Houston Christian? Yes, yes. Like you said earlier, it used to be Houston Baptist, mm -hmm. um, but it is in the process of changing its name to Houston Christian. Houston Christian University. You ought to check that out. I recommend it very frequently. You'll get people like Nancy Piercy there, William Lane Craig, Mike Lacona, Mary Jo Sharp, several others. Uh, so it's a great place to not only learn uh, Christian worldview, theology, philosophy, and apologetics, but meet other people who are also interested in that. So you want to check that out. Nancy, thanks so much for doing two shows with us. Great stuff. 
It was wonderful. It's great having a stimulating conversation like this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nancy. All right, folks, we'll see you here next week. God bless.